breathe. Question mark. 846-360. Again, the title of our study this evening is I Can't Breathe. Question mark. 846 360. And I'm sure right now that may not make much sense to you at all. It will when we're done studying. As much as we're able to, let's go to our knees for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are very grateful, Lord, for the blessing to be able to come together as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God that we can study to show ourselves approved unto you, that we can be workmen and workwomen that need not be ashamed, for we have rightly divided your words of truth. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be our guide. We pray that you might take your words and make it very plain to our hearts and that you might minister to us in such a way that you will actually open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your law. And this is our prayer that we do ask with the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that you'll find in the Bible that God would equate himself to at times, you know, go to the book of Romans chapter 1. Let me show you something. Romans chapter 1. In Romans, the first chapter, the Bible talks a lot about you know, the realities of the condition of God's people, but at the same time, God still reaching out, pleading with the heart, trying to draw us to himself. And I want you to see something that he says here in Romans chapter one. He gets to a place, Paul, he's explaining the reality of who God is and how the creation should acknowledge him for who he is, but they were struggling to do that. And Paul got to a point in Romans one, as we consider verse 20, And if you're there, please say amen. In Romans 1 and verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly what? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. One of the ways that God proves himself is through nature, the things that he's made. And the Bible talks about how God, though he is invisible, the Godhead is invisible. There's things that are invisible that we can't understand, and God is so compassionate towards humanity that he allows us to understand him by the things that are visible. And that's why it talks about the things that are made. We can understand things about God, his eternal power, even his Godhead, by studying and looking at the things that are made. There's one thing that I thought was a highlight for me. Quite honestly, it was at a GYC Atlantic that I got a chance to listen to a dear brother, Brian Sylvester, wonderful man, enjoy him very much, he's a good brother. And uh, he gave a beautiful sermon and he says something about God. And what he said about God, I said, man, I like that. I said, I never thought about God like that. But I want you to see something. I want you to notice something in nature that God equates to himself. Go to the book of Malachi chapter 4. I just want you to watch this. Malachi chapter 4. God, you know, equating himself to something that, you know, 
helps us understand who he is just a little bit better. We're in Malachi. We're going to uh, chapter four here. And I just want you to see what the text says. Malachi chapter four. And I want you to watch this. In Malachi, the fourth chapter, just starting right there at verse one, the Bible says something about God of which God equates himself to something created, something in nature. And it says, for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now watch verse two. But unto you that fear my name shall the what? Now notice it is the S-U-N, not S-O-N, right? So what is God equating himself to in this verse? He's equating himself to the son, right? So here it is that the Bible clearly says that, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. God equates himself to the son at times. In fact, go to Psalms 84. Just as a second witness, if you look at Psalms, the 84th division, you see God do it again. Psalms 84. In Psalms, the 84th division, you will see that God again likens things about his character, things about who he is. And I think that is very important for us to understand it. In Psalms 84, I want you to see what the Bible says as we look at Psalms 84 and verse 11. Once again, we see a second witness to it. In Psalms 84 and verse 11, the Bible says, for the Lord God is a what? Notice that the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. There's things that we can learn through nature about God. Now, the reason why this is important is because God wants us to be like him. It was very much in the beginning of time that when he made man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God wanted man to be a reflection of himself. When you read first Peter and you look at uh, chapter one and verses 15 and 16, God makes it clear as I'm holy. I want you to be holy. In Matthew 5 and verse 48, God says, as I'm perfect, I want you to be perfect. So the Bible is a very, very clear testimony of God's will as it relates to you and I. He wants us to be like him. So when I began to look at this thing about the sun, I said, what is it about the sun that God would equate it to a part of his character, who he is? What would you say? Somebody comes to you and says, God refers to himself as a son of righteousness with healing in his wings. God refers to him as a son and a shield. What do you think God wants us to learn when we look at those things created that we might understand him better? What did you say, Trishiana? That it gives life. All right. Very good. Sunlight gives life, especially to the wonderful plant kingdom. Right. Photosynthesis. Whenever that sunlight and the plants turn towards that sun and receive the appropriate nutriment so that it may grow, flourish and produce fruit. Very good. Anything else? What else do we learn? It gives what? It imparts light. It imparts light. It illuminates. Right. 
So in like manner, when we look at the sun, amen, we see one who loves to illuminate our minds with all sorts of beautiful light to dispel the darkness in this world. That's beautiful. One more. Say again. Healing. Healing. Okay. Medical practitioners to date are still marveling at the wonders of the efficacy of vitamin D. They're still wondering about it. They're like, man, look at all these things we're finding out. They even actually have some studies, probably preliminary, but nevertheless, there are some clinical studies that are actually talking about how higher vitamin D level, better to fight off the coronavirus. Can you imagine that? All that, vitamin D. And so it is that we learn many things about the sun that we can see character qualities and principles about God. And the reason it's important to us is because God wants us to be like him. But there's something I've learned about the son. In addition to, I don't take away from anything that you said, but in addition to everything that you said about God, which I would agree with. You know one of the things that I learned about the son? And then as I thought about it with the son, I said, that's exactly what God is. And then God was saying, Dwayne, this is exactly what I need you to be. You ready? You want to know something pretty amazing about the sun? It's consistent. You never have to wonder, will there be a sunrise tomorrow? You ever ask that question? I mean, we got young people. You ever ask that question? Mom and dad, will there be a sunrise tomorrow? You never ask that question. You never ask, uh, will there be a sunset tomorrow? You ever asked that question? You don't even ask that question. You know why? Because you are very used to the consistency of sunrise and sunset. And one of the things God wanted me to learn when I look at the sun is God wanted me to understand, Dwayne, if there's one thing I want you to really learn about my character... I need you to be something that's the hardest thing for human beings to be. Listen carefully to what I'm saying to you, family, because this this study tonight is deep. It's very deep. It hit me real hard this morning, froze me right in the middle of my family worship. What you're about to hear tonight has birthed from a family worship. God arrested my attention, family, and God was saying, son, You need to learn to be consistent. It's the hardest thing on planet Earth to be is consistent. And I dare to say, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, it is exceptionally hard to be consistent because we are one of the last Christian denominations that still believes in reformation. The reformation did not start with us. It started way back with the Huguenots and the Waldensians and John Wycliffe and John Huss and William Tyndale and Martin Luther and Melanchthon, and you just can go down the names of all of those reformers. But God has a last Reformation movement on this earth, a movement that says, no, we need to come back to the ways of God, not just an acknowledgement of God, but the ways of God. But one of the great traps the devil gets, especially for God's people, is we begin to, with our high-level profession, often show ourselves inconsistent. You see, if you teach health, you should practice health. 
If you teach kindness, you should be kind. If you teach love, you should be loving. If you teach self-control, you should be self-controlled. And so what God does is he helps us learn about himself by looking at the things created. And one of the things that I look at that's created that he equates to is the sun, the S-U-N, the sun. And one of the things we can learn about the sun that I'm very much focused on tonight is the sun is very consistent. God is very consistent. And what the Lord needs is a people on earth that will be just as consistent as he is. Behold your greatest battle. I'm just being real with you. Your greatest battle in life. And the more roles that you have, the harder it gets. To the single people in this room, you need to thank God for your singleness. Because once you become a spouse, now you're not only still an individual that has individual responsibilities, but now you're a spouse that has spouse responsibilities. And wow, what happens when you go from just being a spouse and now you're a parent? Now you need to be a consistent person. In other words, God says to me every day, Dwayne, you have the hardest job on planet Earth. You have to be a consistent man. You have to be a consistent husband and you have to be a consistent father. You have no idea how hard that is unless you're walking in my shoes, Brother Simi, Brother Henry soon to come. God wants us to understand one of the hardest things in the world to be is consistent. And one of the reasons why God, I'm discovering this more and more every day. I look for this. Go to Romans 8. I'm going to show you a very familiar passage of scripture, but then I I want you to, to watch this because when I look at Romans, the eighth chapter, I just want you to see something the Bible says that I've learned to do this. I've learned to to put this into practice. Right. So let's look at Romans eight and I'm going to take you to a familiar text. Romans eight and verse twenty eight. The Bible says in Romans eight and verse twenty eight. It says, for we know. So we know what there's no guessing here. Paul knows. He says, for we know That how many things that all things work together for what? For good. But to whom? To them that love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. There's no question in my mind. You got to settle this for yourself. There's no question in my mind. Two things. One, that I love the Lord. I know it's imperfect. And I'm glad God knows it's imperfect. And he has not cut me off knowing that fact. But he teaches me how to love him better. But I know that I love God. Number two, I know that I am called according to his purpose. There's no big bang theories in my head. I did not come from amoebas to tadpoles and to monkeys and eventually a human and going through the whole process of natural selection and evolution and just kind of having a life with no purpose. Please spare me that foolishness. I know that God has a plan for my life. I know that I've been called. So because of that fact, now let's say you're joining me on this, right? Let's say you love God. Do you love God? Do you know that God has called you according to his purpose? Well, then that means we're in the same bandwagon. But here it is. Because we love God and because we know that we're called according to his purpose, that means that nothing can happen in our lives. 
Nothing can happen around our lives that there's not some good that we can gain out of it. The title of this message is I Can't Breathe. Question mark. 846 360. In America, 2014 marked the year that that simple term, I can't breathe, perhaps became immortalized. It was in 2014 that there was a brother, a black brother. His name Eric Garner. Anybody who paid any attention to news in the United States of America in the year of 2014, it is very difficult to not know who this man is. Eric Garner was a man that was living a life like many people would live, especially an urban lifestyle. And Brother Garner, Mr. Garner, you know, he was uh, an individual living life according to how he understood to live it. Some things he did right, some things he did wrong, I'm sure. Well, there was a time that an accusation came in relation to something he was doing wrong. And he was approached by police officers. He was tired of it and he got upset because it was not his first time running into law. And as a result of the law pressing upon him, wanting to check him out and all of these things, he got to a place of a bit of resistance. He said, I'm tired of this. It stops today. I want y'all to leave me alone. And what ended up happening is right in the heat of that moment. That term what's the title of the message. I can't breathe. That term became immortalized. Why? Because the police officers first grabbed him because they said he was resisting. And so this cop comes behind him. And as you can see, his arm is going around where? His neck. And as his arm goes around his neck, eventually he ends up down on the ground. When he went down on the ground, notice the cop's arm is still where? Around his neck. This was what you call a chokehold. In my former life, before Christ, I studied three different disciplines in martial arts. And one of the things I was taught was chokeholds, a way that you can subdue a person and you can literally cut their airwave off and you can knock them out. If not, kill them. Your choice. Mr. Garner began to speak those words. I can't breathe. It was like the first time, at least and certainly in my generation, it was like the first time that, you know, you were able to hear someone just say it. He said it repeatedly. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they just had him in that headlock. Wouldn't let go. Eric Garner died. He died. And it created a major uproar. I mean a major uproar. Protest, everything you're seeing like right now, it happened back then. 
2014. Major, major uproar. Ultimately, when the question was asked, how did Mr. Garner die? They said it was complications directly related to something called asphyxiation. They said he was murdered. That's why they called it a homicide. They said it was a homicide. They said the thing that ultimately brought on the other complications, because, you know, he had asthma, heart disease, stuff like that. But what, what, like, set it all off was asphyxiation. What is that? It's the state or process of being deprived of oxygen, which can result in unconsciousness or death. Another term would be suffocation. Total synonym, suffocation. This is how he died. It was after George Floyd died. And the autopsy reports came out and, boy, people were mad. And I remember that one of the questions I wanted to know in relation to this homicide was, how long was he struggling to breathe? I feel like life is always filled with trends because, you know, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there's no new thing under the sun. So I often look for trends. When I see stuff happening in our world, I always look back and say, is this a trend? And, you know, I start to make the, connect the dots. Students of prophecy should do that. So I began to look, how long was he struggling to breathe? And the answer is, nobody knew. There was no report that I saw or anything that was able to explain how long he was going through this asphyxiation and losing his ability to breathe and ultimately going unconscious and eventually dying. I, there's no calculation that's actually been reported, okay? Now remember, what's the title of our message? I can't breathe. What's the first thing on the list? A question mark. You've arrived at our question mark. Nobody knows. This is the man who wrapped his arm around Eric Garner's neck. Daniel Pantaleo is his name. Most certainly, people were outraged by what took place, so of course they wanted to pursue him legally. They felt he was a murderer because, again, the autopsy report said homicide. That was the autopsy report. They said this was a homicide. Well, he was the man who did it. And so they began to make this thing a court case. And when they took it to the court, here was some of the results. He was considered not guilty for any crime and held on to his job until 2019. Can you imagine that? He killed, but he was not committed for any crime. Nothing. Like nothing. Held on to his job up until last year. When 2019 came along, this was in spite of the fact. Now watch this. This was in spite of the fact that an administrative judge found him guilty of using an illegal chokehold that ended Eric Garner's life. Literally, the chokehold that he had him in was illegal. It was actually illegal. Yet, he was not penalized for it. That's just so strange, isn't it? Oh, but watch this now. Yes, in 2019, he was eventually fired and stripped of his pension benefits. What do you think about that? You think that that's fair? Think that was a good judgment? What do you think? Fair? Good judgment. I mean, he lost his job. 
even though this year he's suing to get his job back. But they fired him after five years of the murder, and they took away his benefits. Do you think he should have suffered more, or do you think that that's sufficient? You look conflicted. You don't know. Okay, no problem. I say a criminal is a criminal, for the Bible teaches God is no respecter of persons. And the word of God says, to whom much is given, much is? Do you know in the Bible, every time a leader leads the people in sin, the leader suffers a worse punishment than the people who commit the sin? Why does God do that? Because God understands the position of leadership and authority. So the truth of the matter is, is if we were to use the Bible to judge and if we were to just use common sense to judge, if an average criminal can suffer ABC punishments, how much the more one who was hired to serve and protect and instead murdered? So my answer to that question, is this sufficient that he just got fired after five years and just lost some benefits? Absolutely not. He deserves much more than that. He needs to be in prison. He's a murderer. But nevertheless, this was one of the stories, okay? We fast forward to 2020. Again, the title of the message is, I Can't Breathe. The first item was, question mark. It's amazing how you can go from unknown to exceedingly and abundantly popular in a matter of weeks. You know why I know that? Because I guarantee you, May 24, 2020 backwards, you did not know who he was. Isn't that right? May 24, 2020, you did not know who this man was. I didn't either. But May 25, 2020, up till right now, June 19th. Anybody knows his name? What's this man's name? Thank you, George Floyd. Mr. George Floyd. George Floyd became popular like Eric Garner and beyond Eric Garner. But George Floyd had a similar experience and made a similar statement. George Floyd, again, a man growing up, influenced urban lifestyle, there are some testimonies that was given in relation to him that, you know, he ended up giving his heart to Christ. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean that he's a perfect man. And so, yes, he more than likely made some mistakes and what have you. And here it is that his case is still pending right now. But unfortunately, Mr. Floyd, unfortunately, uh, you know, there was an altercation, something that happened. We don't have all the data on it yet, but we know that there was some degree of arrest and struggle by which eventually he ends up on the ground. And this time, it is not an arm around his neck, but this time it's a knee on his neck. When the knee fell onto his neck, he made the same statement. I can't breathe. And so once again, this term has almost become immortalized at this point. In other words, I don't know if we'll ever have a state of society 
that will exist since 2014 that will forget the term, I can't breathe. When this took place, again, the autopsy report stated in relation to Mr. Floyd, it was a homicide. He died connected with complications from asphyxiation. Again, what does asphyxiation mean? It means the state or process of being deprived of oxygen, which can result in unconsciousness or death. Again, suffocation. I wondered, and this time I think you know the answer. The question is, how long was Mr. Floyd struggling to breathe? The answer is eight minutes and 46 seconds. Can you imagine a knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds struggling to breathe? What's the title of our message? I can't breathe. Question mark. 846. What's the last number? 360. When we start to look at this case, the murderer of Mr. George Floyd is none other than another police officer by the name of Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin. Somebody says, well, what's happened to him? The truth of the matter is, it's still to be determined. It's still to be determined. And right now, we have an entire planet that's in uproar over this latest I can't breathe event. People are getting very tired. People are getting very frustrated. People are getting very upset. And it's not just affecting the secular world. It's affecting very much the religious world. It's not just affecting the religious world. It's actually affecting the world of God's remnant people. I'll be honest with you. There's some people that I thought was my friend and that I thought I knew them. And ever since this George Floyd stuff has come up, uh, I don't know if we're really friends and I don't know if I really know them. Because I've seen things come out of the mouth of people or I've seen posts come from people that are people that I affiliate with and associate with. And, and we roll together in pastoral leadership or evangelism leadership and I'm noticing things that they're saying that is honestly concerning me. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable probably being around them because they let out how they think on the media. And so it's become a tremendous concern and I'm realizing that crisis never ever produces character but it sure does reveal it. Man, it reveals it. I mean, some of the nastiness, some of the dismissiveness, some of the carelessness that I've seen come out of the mouth of those who are responsible men and women over souls. And you saw last week, as we studied, some of us are even hands off on social issues because of misinterpretations of Ellen White's writings. I mean, I thank God for last week's study. We cleared that thing up. Don't let anybody ever give you Desire of Ages 309, paragraph 3, to try to tell you that our Lord was aloof 
to social justice issues. Don't put that on my savior. Let that be your God, but not certainly not my God and not the God of truth. We saw clear as day that the Bible and the beautiful writings of God's inspired prophet that we saw clear as day that God is very much into social justice. The only thing is, is that we must remember that Deuteronomy tells us that we are the head and we are not to be the tail. So we don't follow the world's methodology of protesting. We follow God's methodology. We studied that last week. But God wants us to understand that we need to do something about this because this is a major problem right now. Right now, we have a world that is upside down. And listen, we're here. I used to tell my children when we lived in the country and my children were in this nice country environment, I always told them, I said, look, sooner or later, you're going to have to get out of this holy bubble. And you're going to have to learn how to deal with a very real world. And the reality is, is that some of you, you know, here on these wonderful grounds here, there's a nice holy bubble over here. Dress reform is faithfully practiced, good, healthful diet, nice, regulated routine. Oh, it's all good here. Here, you can relax. You can feel great. Like-minded brethren, at best, we might have a little bit of misunderstanding on a couple of doctrinal points. But, you know, that's nothing to sever friendships. That's nothing that makes us have stress going to bed at night wondering, is this brother going to hurt me or is this sister going to do something wrong to me? We don't have a lot of drama on these grounds. Or do we? No, I'm sure we don't. No, I'm sure we don't. I'm sure we don't. I'm sure we don't. But the reality is, is that God brings us to a place for a season that we might be given something that builds us up. And prepares us to go into a very real field with very real drama and that we might be so endowed with his Holy Spirit that we know how to address the crisis at hand. Remember, many weeks ago, we had a study that God wants you and I to be what Joseph and what Daniel and what Esther was during the crisis of their days. Are we in a crisis right now? God wants you and I to be a solution to those problems. But we have to understand some very important points in this study. Again, the title of the message is called I Can't Breathe. Question mark. Has the question mark been addressed? Yes. 846. Has the 846 been addressed? So what's only left? 360. Go to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew, the first chapter, the Bible tells us a beautiful story. It was in Matthew chapter 1 that the Bible shows us something ever so wonderful. In Matthew chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 23, when you get there, please say amen. It says in Matthew 1 and verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The most incredible story in the world that the creator of heaven and earth is going to dwell with men and women. Not just men and women, but sinful men and women. God with us. 
What was he going to do while he was with us? Verse 21. It says in verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he's going to do something very special. What's he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sin. A man with a mission. God with us, Emmanuel, came about us because he knew that I am going to deliver my people from their sins. The whole mind, character and personality and ministry of the life of Jesus was that he might ultimately bring us to this very precious place that you and I might be saved from our sins. Somewhere along in Jesus's journey, he became very cognizant of the realities that he was going to face. I want to show you in Matthew 16. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus became very, very aware that something was going to happen to him. And he spells it out in a remarkable manner in Matthew 16. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew 16. And I want you to watch what the text says, because we're going to see something that Jesus was teaching his disciples over and over and over again, actually. It says in Matthew 16, right there in verse 21, look at what the text says. It says, from that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be what? And be killed and be raised again the third day. I want you to notice that. Now, the location where Jesus said this was in verse 13, Caesarea Philippi. That's where he was when he made that statement. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be traded in by the chief priests, etc. And they're going to kill me. But don't worry. This is the third day I'm going to rise up again. Go one chapter over to Matthew 17. Take a look at this one in Matthew 17. Now we're in verse 22. In Matthew 17, verse 22. Let's take a look. It says in Matthew 17 and verse 22. It says, and while they abode in where? Galilee. Jesus said unto them, the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall do what? They shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. So notice Jesus is going from one location to another and he's repeating himself. He's letting them know son of man is going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise up the third day. First location, Caesarea Philippi. Second location, Galilee. Go to Luke 18. In Luke 18, let's notice this now. In Luke, the 18th chapter. In Luke, we're considering now chapter 18. And look at verse 31. In Luke 18 and verse 31, it says, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Jesus found himself repeating himself often to the disciples the same message. Why? Because of 34. What does it say in verse 34? It says, and they understood how many? None of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Jesus had to repeat himself because sometimes people just don't get it. 
That's the whole gospel, family. The gospel is all about repetition. It's about repeating it. If you were in business, you would know that business terms tell us repetition deepens the impression. We already know that in business. How much more is it true in religion? God often had to say one word to his people. Remember. Why did he have to say remember so often? Because they were prone to forgetting. God wants us to understand. He has to constantly repeat himself because we have a tendency often to forget. And I believe that when it comes to this crisis, this issue of I can't breathe, we have allowed this crisis to affect us in such a way that I think that we have forgotten some things that God really wants us to remember because his desires for you and I to be consistent. The reality, my brothers and sisters, is that we heard Eric Garner say, I can't breathe. We heard George Floyd say, I can't breathe. But there was somebody before these men were a twinkle in their mother's eyes who also couldn't breathe. We have watched unconverted, ungodly, even perhaps you might even call them wicked officers. Almost get away with these murders. They're murderers. Even the autopsies report said it clear as day. Homicide. Murderers. What did they do? They died from asphyxiation or at least the complications connected to it. They cut off the airways and as a result of not being able to breathe, other things started happening in the body and they died. And we, I'm sure, either verbalized, typed in our post or quietly kept it in the heart. A judgment, perhaps an indifference as it relates to this very crisis. And God says, if Eric Garner's cry of I can't breathe doesn't move you, if George Floyd's cry of I can't breathe doesn't move you, God says, then let me introduce you to someone else who struggled breathing. It was when Jesus finally went on the cross, what he told the disciples came to pass. When he got on that cross, crucifixion was indisputably one of the cruelest and most barbaric forms of punishment in the ancient world. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, described crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. It was viewed with such horror that in one of Seneca's letters to Lucilius, Seneca wrote that suicide was preferable to crucifixion. Why was crucifixion so bad? Well, just as a snapshot, Hanging from the arms for any considerable length of time is painful. Once the muscles give out, it is excruciating. Shoulders literally separate from the sockets and the overall arm can literally lengthen by inches. There are some scholars that believe that Psalms 22 and verse 14, that when it says my joints were taken out of socket, they look at that also as part of the Messianic song. You see, the, the Bible make it very clear that his bones won't be broken. 
but it's not necessarily that his joints won't go out of socket. It says most people would try to support themselves by putting pressure on their injured feet. But with their legs bent and their feet nailed through it was only a matter of time before their leg strength gave way as well. Breaking their legs was horrible, but on the other hand, allowing them to support themselves prolonged their suffering. Lee Strobel, his story is a very interesting story to me. He's an evangelical, okay? We don't believe the doctrines and the teachings of the evangelicals when it comes to things like Sunday worship and state of the dead and many other topics. But evangelicals are not all wrong in everything they believe. I hope you don't believe that. And Lee Strobel's story I found to be very interesting because in his story, he actually talks about how his wife and he were atheists. Happy married atheists, loving their atheistic lifestyle. But then a time came where their daughter was at a restaurant with them, enjoying time together, and the daughter began choking, choking on food. Lee Strobel and his wife had no idea what to do with their daughter. But there was a woman present that did. That woman took their daughter and said, let me help began to do Heimlich maneuver and all these other things. And eventually what was blocking her airway comes out of her mouth. The daughter is better. And Lee Strobel and his wife are ever so thankful to that woman. The woman told them, God sent me here this evening. Lee Strobel was like, okay. And he kept it moving. His wife, however, was like, hmm, hmm. The long story short is the wife began to talk with that woman. They exchanged numbers, kept in contact. The wife ended up going through a conversion experience and accepted Jesus. And her husband, Lee Strobel, was so upset. Beautiful story. That he determined, he said, do you really believe this? And his wife says, yes, I do. Then he says, I will prove that there is no God. He had a co-worker and his co-worker was a Christian. And he went to the co-worker and he said, if somebody wanted to disprove God, what would be the easiest way to attack it? His co-worker told him, disprove the resurrection. He says, if you can disprove the resurrection, Christianity is useless. He says, so if I can disprove the resurrection, I can win my wife back. And his co-worker said, go for it. This man made conference calls. This is in the 1980s. He made conference calls to other countries, spoke with scholars and all these other people. But eventually he found himself in Los Angeles as he was trying to debunk the resurrection point by point, point by point, point by point. And every single time he tried to debunk it, it ended up working against him and he found out it was truth. He was getting down to his last wits. He went to go visit a medical doctor. And he began to talk about how Jesus died because some people said, oh, it was a fake and this, that and the other. The medical doctor gave him a copy of one of the most respected articles of the time as it relates to medical examination. It was called the Journal of the American Medical Association. In this print, here's what they said as it relates to the study of Jesus. Now, please understand that no one can pinpoint with exactness 
exactly what Jesus died from. But there is a correlating theme that no one argues. Notice. Jesus would have been suspended with much of his weight borne by his arms. With his legs bent under him. In the classic symptoms of crucifixion, the position would have almost immediately started to reduce his respiratory capacity. Initiating a gradual lessening of the oxygen being mixed into his bloodstream and setting the stage for eventual what? Asphyxiation. It then says eventually the combination of blood loss, because remember they brutally beat him. It says, eventually the combination of blood loss before the crucifixion and the toll of the ordeal itself would have brought on something called hypovolemic shock, a state similar to what occurs in severe bleeding victims who are about to die. Then it says, meanwhile, the stress on Jesus's respiratory system would have precipitated symptoms like those of congestive heart failure and blood clots would have begun to form in the major arteries or valves of the heart. Eventually, in the last moments of Christ's agony, one of the clots may have broken loose, precipitating a catastrophic heart seizure that would account for biblical description of an apparently climactic final moment of agony. So when they came to the conclusion, what was it? by way of all evidence in studying crucifixions and how people die. Guess what they found out? Jesus died from homicide. Somebody killed him. And again, his death came as a result of complications connected with asphyxiation. What is asphyxiation? The state or process of being deprived of oxygen, which can result in unconsciousness or death and suffocation. Now, when somebody asked the question, when Eric Garner couldn't breathe, who killed him? And the answer is Daniel Pantaleo. When somebody says George Floyd, who killed him? The people say, Derek Chauvin. We ask the question, especially the black community, what do you want to happen to Daniel Pantaleo and Derek Chauvin? We want justice. What kind of justice you want? Basically, what he gave them, he should get. Okay? Not a problem. God brings us back now to somebody else who was murdered and who died from complications connected with asphyxiation. And the question is, how long did he suffer with this asphyxiation? Go to Mark 15. The first answer to that question, how long did Eric Garner suffer? The, the answer was question mark. We don't know. The second question was, how long did George Floyd go with suffering, getting oxygen within his lungs to his brain? The answer is eight minutes and 46 seconds. The question is, if crucifixion causes all these problems with breathing, etc., then how long did Jesus have to go through this? 
Mark 15. In Mark 15, notice what the Bible says in verse 25. In Mark 15, in verse 25, the Bible says, and it was the what? It was the third hour. And they crucified him. So Jesus was crucified at when? The third hour. Would you agree with that? So how long was he on there? Hanging. I don't know if you ever tried to hold yourself in the same position like Jesus and try to just keep taking a deep breath. It's not very easy. How long was he in that position? Struggling to breathe because somebody was viciously murdering him. Matthew 27. We get to find out how long. In Matthew 27, notice what the Bible says. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Interesting. It says in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, it says, now from the what? Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now, verse 46, and about the when? Ninth hour, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So notice, Jesus at minimum was on the cross from the what hour? Third hour until the ninth hour. How many hours is that? Six hours. You ever did a calculation on how many minutes are in six hours? The answer, 360. You see, it's amazing how we have this tendency to forget. It's amazing, Roderick, how we forget. We watch Eric Garner clearly showing, I can't breathe. And it was for an uncalculated amount of minutes, but it was not as long as George Floyd. We then watched George Floyd. And he couldn't breathe for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And he cried out for his mother. Boy, did that thing move our hearts for those of us who watched it. But here goes a man who struggled breathing for 360 minutes under the hand of murderers. And guess what? He called out for his father. And wouldn't it be awesome if the outrage that we saw when the people were so mad at what happened to Eric Garner and they went into action to fight the thing that brought on the murder of Eric Garner. Wouldn't it be powerful when we see how when George Floyd got murdered And all we reflect on is that eight minutes and 46 seconds. He couldn't breathe. And now we're putting forth all sorts of action to fight the thing that brought on that murder. But now we're looking to Jesus. An innocent man. Hey, an innocent man of color. Three hundred sixty minutes. 
a crowd that mocked him. His own religious buddies who betrayed him. He cried out for his father. And then he died. And the autopsy report, if you will, declares homicide. Somebody killed him. And the question is, who killed him? The Bible helps answer this question unequivocally. In Isaiah 53 and verse 5, the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, the best the better way to turn that last part is in the Hebrew rendition. It says the chastisement required that we might have peace was upon him. We should have got the chastisement from God. Jesus says, I'll take their chastisement. So they can have my peace. My brothers and sisters. Go to Psalm 69, Psalm 69. You see, we need to understand something because it's in crisis like this that board we have a tendency to be Israel of old. We begin to forget the title of our message is I can't breathe. Question mark. Eight forty six. Three sixty. And the Bible says in Psalms, the 69th division in verse 20, look at what it says. It says, listen, the Bible is helping us understand what was it that murdered Jesus? It says reproach hath done something. What did reproach do? Reproach hath broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. The Bible makes it very clear Jesus died of a broken heart. It was more than just physical conditions that crushed him. It was an emotional trauma, my brothers and sisters, that no human lips could ever fully and properly explain. Reproach broke his heart. What is this reproach? Go to Proverbs 14 now and verse 34. Notice what the Bible calls reproach. Proverbs 14 and verse 34. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, right there in verse 34, it says something beautiful, doesn't it? It says righteousness does what to a nation? It exalts a nation. But then it says, but sin is a reproach to any people. What was it that broke Jesus's heart? Reproach. What is reproach? Sin. Whose sin? Ours. Behold the man. You mean to tell me? In other words, we look at that cop who put his arm around Eric Garner's neck. And Eric Garner said, I can't breathe. And our emotions rose up in 2014. And we said, what kind of murderous, wicked man this man is. Then you fast forward a few years later, six years later, George Floyd. And now we see another man knee on the neck. What does he say? Can't breathe. 
and we calculate very carefully how cold and callous and careless that officer was while he drained the life out of that man. And our comments about Daniel Pantaleo and, and about Derek Chauvin, our comments about them is about anything else but good. Wicked, evil, worthy of death, worthy of judgment, worthy of punishment, and the list goes on. And I'm not here by any stretch of the imagination. I want to be very clear that God is a God of justice and he knows perfectly how to mix justice and mercy. I am not here to suggest that no justice should be given to Daniel Pantaleo as well as Derek Chauvin. I am not here. I believe with all my heart those men should be dealt with very righteously and very faithfully according to the full extent of the law. But I need to take our minds away from that world for a second because there was one more man who couldn't breathe. And it was because of a homicide event. Somebody killed him. And when we think back and we look back and we say, you know, if Daniel Pantaleo in 2020 is trying to sue the people that fired him, then that testifies he's probably not very repentant. Wouldn't you agree with that? If Derek Chauvin has still not made a statement, even though this is just about a month old of what took place, chances are there's some lacking of repentance. Or remorse. So then the question is this, what about us? You see, startling fact about scripture. In Isaiah 47 and verse eight, God gave me these texts of scripture to really think about it. Look at this. Therefore, hear now this, thou that art given to what? Pleasures. This was a judgment that was falling on the Babylonians because of how they treated God's children, Israel. God was making it clear to the Babylonians, it's time for my people to come out. And God was letting them know that you need to let my people go, if you will. And as God was rebuking them and so on, God began to tell them these things. He says, therefore, hear now this. Thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Verse nine, God says, you shall know what it is to be a widow and you will lose your children. But while they were in their pompous position, don't lose this. While they were in their pompous position, they was calling themselves God. Did you see it? It says that sayest in thine heart, I am. They were trying to say, I'm God. No, you can't do anything to me. They were standing in boldness before God. Can you imagine that? Now watch this. They were given to pleasures while they were demonstrating their carelessness and their arrogance. How about this one? It was in Luke 8 and verse 14 that the Bible says, talking about when Jesus was decoding the, the parable of the sower. And he says, and that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard, go forth, heard the gospel, by the way, go forth and are choked with cares and riches. And what else? Pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Again, it's word pleasure. It's, it's like these people are living in sin and rebellion. And they're having a lot of pleasure in doing it. Then how about this one? Second Timothy three and verse four. When Timothy went through the last day list of the condition of God's people, Timothy says in second Timothy three and verse four that they will be traitors, heady, high minded and lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. It was even Moses himself 
that when Moses was considering the sinful opportunities that was set before him, Moses made a decision to suffer with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know why these verses speak volumes to me and it should speak volumes to you. It's not enough that Jesus couldn't breathe. It's not enough that he suffered for 360 minutes. It's not enough for us to understand that it was our sins that murdered him. But what's really deep is that we actually, my brothers and sisters, when we sin, we enjoy or find pleasure in it. We enjoyed every second of the murder. We enjoyed every second of it. That's the impact. God literally says, this is my people. We enjoyed it. Because when we sin, the Bible teaches very clearly where there's sin, there is pleasure. It only lasts for a season, but for the season, it's pleasurable. Can you imagine? Isn't that sick to think about somebody who had pleasure? Murdering a man while he was calling out for his father? Isn't that sick? In other words, again, I'm just trying to make the connection because we're in the season of I can't breathe. We're in the season. It's a great time to give a message like this. Great time. Eric Garner couldn't breathe. We were disgusted on what happened in that question mark because we didn't even have the minutes calculation. We were startled when we watched George Floyd go through that thing for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Our minds couldn't even handle it. There's very few people that watch the whole thing. That's how disgusted we were. And here goes Jesus saying, I, I went through it for 360 minutes. And guess what? It gets worse. Go to Hebrews 6. It gets worse. You see, last week we talked about a call to action. We saw that some of us were guilty of being indifferent as it relates to social justice. We saw that, no, we cannot just rub our hands off, shake our heads and say, shame, shame, shame of all this stuff that's happening. God says, I expect my people to get involved. I expect my people to make known who I am in the midst of this crisis while everybody is going crazy. This is not the time to keep staying in the bubble. You got to get out, you got to go on the field, and you got to be willing to do something. In fact, before I go there, I remember one Friday night. Go to 1 John 3. We're almost done, by the way. Go to 1 John 3. Keep your finger on Hebrews 6, but go to 1 John 3. I remember that my family and I, May 25th, George Floyd was killed. That following Friday evening, I was with my family, and I asked them a question. I said, what would God have you do if you were there? What would God have me do? Because in my mind, I'm just being honest with you. Listen, I'm just one black man with thoughts. I'm just saying, I got, I'm going to share it with you. In my mind, I see inconsistency. I really do. Right now, there are people who are going on the street, risking their lives, risking their safety, to express their outrage over a man who got killed. In my mind, I'm like, why didn't you take that risk when the guy had his knee on his neck? Maybe George Floyd would be alive right now. In other words, everybody knows, have people gotten killed already during the riots? Has anybody gotten killed during the riot and protest? Yes. Have people gotten hurt? Yes. Have people suffered loss? Yes. 
They did all of that, right? So in my mind, I'm just like, well, if you're gonna go ahead and risk all of that, why didn't you risk it rather than holding up a camera and just recording the whole thing? Because I might have died. I agree, I understand that fear. But I wonder what the Christian response is. First John 3. In 1 John 3, what is the Christian response? 1 John 3, could it be? Somebody says, this is crazy. It's not crazy, it's biblical. In 1 John 3, look at verse 16. The Bible says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God. The what? The love of God. Because he did what? He laid down his life for us, and we ought to do something. What is it that we ought to do? Is that a literal verse or is John being symbolic? Could it be that God would actually call us to serve somebody else? Even if it risks us dying. I believe the answer is yes. And so the reality is, is that God wants us to understand there's something wrong with us. And if we're going to get to work and if we're going to protest and if we're going to address issues with pen and with voice and with our letters and showing up at the right places to talk to the right people, because we learned last week that God definitely calls his people to be involved in social justice. God definitely does that. But remember, the first kingdom God wants established is the kingdom of what? The kingdom of grace. And where's the kingdom of grace established? In the heart, in us. Now watch this. Jesus wants us to understand Hebrews 6 and verse 6. I need to understand my true condition. You need to understand your true condition. This is how messed up we are, family. In Hebrews 6 and verse 6, the Bible says, If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the son of God, what? Afresh and bring him to a what? Wait a minute. I don't know if we understand that. Let me put a magnifying glass on this verse. Here's the magnifying glass. In that precious book, Desire of Ages, page 300, paragraph three, it says real sorrow for sin is the result of the working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit reveals the ingratitude of the heart that has slighted and grieved the Savior and brings us in contrition to the foot of the cross. By every sin, how many sins? By every sin, Jesus is wounded afresh. And as we look upon him whom we have pierced, we mourn for the sins that have brought anguish upon him. Such mourning will lead to the renunciation of sin. God wants you and I to understand. We are actually worse than the two police officers we just looked at. You know why? Daniel Pantaleo can only kill Eric Garner once. Derek Chauvin can only kill George Floyd once. But every time you and I choose to indulge in that pleasure of sin, even for a season, every sin crucifies the Son of God afresh. In the world and in law, they call that serial killer. You're murdering multiple people. The reality is, is that while we are disgusted 
by the evil that we see in the world. The one whom God is going to build up and qualify to address it is the one who first understands their true condition. You know what God did to me? I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard for me to look at that face for a long time. Because that's an action shot. That is literally what his face looked like when people were yelling at him and telling him, the brother said he can't breathe, he's dying, get off his neck, etc., etc. When they said all of that, look at that face. It, it was like his face represented an indifference, carelessness, and all these other things. It was like his face represented all of that. A lot of people hate this picture because every time they see it, they keep seeing this man who just carelessly murdered another man, right? And you know what God helped me see? Dwayne, I want you to see something different every time you see him. Because once you see it, God says, I can use you better to be a part of my solution. You know what God wants me to see and wants you to see? Every time you see that face, and his face will be gone after a while, and there'll probably be somebody else that replaces it. But do you know who God wants you to see every time you see these faces? God wants you, my brothers and sisters, to see yourself. God says, I want you to see you. A cold-hearted murderer. Enjoyed the murder while you did it. You enjoyed it so much, you did it again and again, knowing it was wrong. God says, see yourself. And the Bible is too clear to be misunderstood. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. And I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. The law that says thou shalt not covet was none other than the 10th commandment. And James makes it clear for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. My brothers and sisters, you're a murderer. I'm a murderer. We are Daniel Pantaleo. We are Derek Chauvin. And you know what's interesting? You know why I firmly believe that they should get justice? It's because we did. And if we don't, then we will. What do I mean? You see, God never let us get away with our sins, did he? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean? That means that Jesus actually said, though they murdered me, Father, I'll take their punishment. Though they're worthy of punishment, I'll take it. If they'll just accept me. You see, justification by faith is so beautiful. God being able to take somebody with a horrific record and absolutely erasing it with the blood of his own son because of that kingdom we studied last week, that kingdom of grace, this willingness to pardon man. But God says the only way the exchange works, you see, do you want justification by faith? You want it, right? We all want it. Well, let me show you how to get it. Romans 4. As we close, Romans 4. How do we get this thing? It is in Romans, the fourth chapter. God says, I'll show you how to get it. It's when we get this right, we are better prepared to be an instrument in God's hands to bring a solution to a crisis of which we are in right now. 
But I got to check my heart and you got to check yours. And the Bible says in Romans four and it says in verse five, it says, but to him that worketh not. But believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Is there a promise of justification in the verse? Does God promise that though you are guilty, I can pardon you and make you right? Does the Bible give that promise? Yes, it does. But according to the verse, who does the promise belong to? To those who believe more than that. I always find, I always find it very interesting how we miss, miss an open book test. That thing is right in your face. Say again. The ungodly. Who is it that the verse says God justifies? The ungodly. So what is it that you and I must be absolutely, completely, unequivocally, no excuses, convinced of that I am finishing? ungodly. And the sooner you don't just say it, but the sooner that we actually believe it. God says, I can clean up your past now. Because that's the whole story of the cross. God faithfully dealing with very guilty people. You see, I want Derek Chauvin to go to prison. I want Daniel Pantaleo to go to, to prison. But you know what else I want? And it took some time for me to get there. But you know what else I want? I want them to find a minister of the gospel while they're in prison that will draw their hearts to Jesus and help them see their desperate need for conversion. You see, if you call yourself a Christian, but you are not praying for these brothers. You're part of the problem. I don't care how black conscious you are or how blank conscious anybody is. If you have not gotten to the place to say, Lord, while you must execute righteous justice towards men who do wrong, please, by your grace, mingle it with mercy that their hearts may be turned to you. Right now, what some people want is they just want those guys to disappear and their names or their faces never to be seen again. That is not the heart of a born again child of God. What God needs us to understand is that there is a connection of the term I can't breathe. One had a question mark. One was 846. The other one was 360. And as far as I'm concerned, the 360 suffered far worse than the rest. The problem is Derek Chauvin, Daniel Pantaleo and you and I are all in the same boat for murdering the one on 360. And so God is saying, listen. What do you want me to do to you? You vicious murderer. What do you want me to do with you? And we already know we're like that publican. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. God says, all right, then I want you to do the same. I want you to intercess. I want you to pray. I want you to be part of a real solution. Do not just go and whatever your methodology of protest is, don't go there with anger and hate and revenge in your heart. But you got to go with the spirit of Christ. The spirit of an intercessor. This is where it gets deep. If I were to ask the average conscious black man or black woman right now, would you die for Derek Chauvin? They probably would put some words before they say no. But if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you die for Derek Chauvin? Jesus would say, I already did and I knew what he was going to do. 
Can you imagine that? Real Christianity. And I believe with all of my heart, the world is starving to see what real Christianity looks like right now. I lied to you now. I'm burning up inside. I really am. I, I'm glad that God is holding me back, but I'm burning up inside because I'm like, Lord, I've been thinking this for years. I watch the LGBTQ community and I watch how they just took over this country. I'm like, look, live how you want to live. But the idea that you're telling lies and you're telling people, oh, yeah, you're born this way. God created you this way. And you got preachers and all these individuals going out there and saying amen to that. And I'm like, that is so deceptive. That is so wrong. And now here we got Supreme Court telling us that the Supreme Court is now telling us you can't even fire a person if they're gay. I'm like, listen, call me a criminal. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. I'm going to obey God rather than men. If I'm running an institution and I hire people and that institution represents the gospel of Jesus Christ and somebody comes to me and says, Brother Lemon, Mr. Lemon, I am gay. I'm going to say, listen, we can counsel with you. We can help you. We can pray with you. But until this is resolved, you cannot work here. You can't do that because you're representing an institutional arm of the gospel. But this is the world we live in right now. Then on top of that, black, white relations and all in between. And we are watching people let all the bigot in them come out of them. I'm seeing black people call white folks all sorts of things. I'm seeing white people call black people all sorts of things. And these are people that are in the faith. And I'm just thinking to myself, what is wrong with us? And one thing is, we are showing ourselves two things. One, inconsistent with our professions. And clearly, we have forgotten who we really are before the Lord. And God is calling us back to be, some, to be like the sunlight, to be consistent. God is calling us to remember your true condition. Remember, but for my grace, you're worse than those guys. And if we can get it, my brothers and sisters, this is what I've been waiting for. I, I believe with all of my heart, God is getting an army ready. God is getting a people ready that are going to be so anointed with his spirit. They're going to have so much of the mind of Jesus that when they show up, they're going to blow away the Anderson Coopers, the Don Lemons, the Wolf, and all the guys on CNN and Fox and MSNBC. When they interview us, we are going to bring something to the table that has never been brought before, we're going to bring the word of the living God. Everything we teach and believe, we stand on it. But remember the lesson of the son. Because once you profess it, the people expect you to be consistent with your profession. May God help us to be consistent with our profession that we may honor him. Question. How many of us understood the study tonight? I can't breathe. Question mark, 846, 360. How many of you, let me see your hands. How many of you understood the study and what God is saying to your heart? My brothers and sisters, make sure you give the right response to your Savior. Let's go to our knees and let's seal it with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 
the wise will understand. There is a tremendous work that must be done. But that kingdom of grace must be well established within us so that we can work for you in such a way that we can usher in that precious kingdom of glory. Lord, we accept and we realize Jesus suffered the worst, even of our brothers. It's not to take away from their sufferings. But Lord, I'm grateful that you have sobered our minds and you've helped us to see that we're the worst of the categories that have been presented. And Father, it's hard for us to believe this. It's hard for us to accept this. But there's so much freedom because you are so willing to save us if we could just accept this. And so, Lord, I pray, please give us a cooperative spirit. Help us to recognize how your hands are still outstretched. And I pray, ultimately, may we be counted amongst that team that you are carefully putting together for the finishing of your work. Abide with us, dear God. Please forgive us truly for our sins and create in us a clean heart. Is our prayer that we ask in the worthy and mighty name of Jesus. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.